A reading from Antoine de Saint-Exupéry's The Little Prince. If you want to build a ship, don't drum up laborers to gather wood, divide the work, and give orders. If you want to build a ship, teach people to long for the immensity of the sea. Welcome to part two of our exploration for changing other people. Uh, last time, we looked at the story of the tiger's whisker and how uh, the, the desire for changing other people is similar to just wishing there was some sort of like magic potion that would make it work, and it doesn't work like that. But we do have this desire, and we explored how, you know, naturally we're going to change people anyway, so we might as well focus on how we change people well. And that's what I want to get into today. We, we looked at how, you know, in conflicts with others, we get frustrated with them or just things we don't like or don't prefer. We tend to use violence, impeding, uh, enforcing our will on other people as a way to get people to change. But that doesn't tend to work. It has some, some philosophical problems and some moral problems with it, but it also doesn't make the change last. And that's because it, it forces a person's change to be extrinsically motivated as opposed to being intrinsically motivated. But we're still left with this problem. What if, what if it's a really good thing to change somebody? What if we're helping them? How do we actually do it? And so I invited you last time to think of somebody um, that is in your life, somebody you're dependent on, somebody they have a lot of intimacy with, proximity with, um, that you might want to change. You know, there's something about them. Um, as we look at this, I want you to continue to have that person in mind. But I don't want you to stray far from the fact that this kind of applies to you as well. So let's look at now that we know how not to change people, how do we actually change people? And if our biggest mistake, and the reason changing other people has such a negative taboo-like resonance, is that we make their change about us, you know, and, and it's not sustainable or relationally connected as a result, the, the primary bend is that moving someone from A to B to C is a series of steps that must have more to do with them than it does with you. And if you are the only person you can control, we might be onto something here. So I, I phrased this process. We're going to look at several different things here. We're going to look at some theology, some psychology. Um, I want to I want to look at that quote that I gave. Um, but I want to give some some very practical steps to how this actually needs to start. So if it's not through the the, the violent conflict um, or acts of control, what do we need to do? And we're going to find here that this actually starts with us. So first, you have to analyze your intentions. The first step when the desire to change someone surfaces is to check yourself. Pay attention to your motivation. If there is any indication that this is primarily about you and that they, in some way, have simply become you know, an object for you to achieve what you want, then pulling off a healthy change is going to be difficult. The, the primary beneficiary should either be the other person or, or, or simply the good of the larger social sphere in question. I mean, if, 
if the catalyst of your approach is that there is some lingering anger or vengeance or negatively compelled emotion, you should probably deal with that first. Because not only will the approach to change probably be violent in the way we defined last episode, you might find yourself disappointed when the proposed change doesn't actually solve any of those problems for you. You know, in the midst of a negative, it's real easy to see some potential possibility and assume, you know, that's going to answer the problem, even though it doesn't address any of the first causes of the problem. Wherever we go, there we are. And if you haven't done that internal work, it will keep coming along for the ride. More specifically, however, we we have to take time to question, is there any selfishness here? Do I have an ulterior agenda in my desire for changing this person? And listen, I'm not saying that those things are bad. Seriously, you have to take care of yourself. I'm just saying that the motivation probably isn't going to elicit actual change in the other person and won't solve those problems. You're using the wrong methodology. If your solution for the issues in your life are to try to change other people, it might be a work in the impossible. It might be worth a conversation then of finding a way to deal with the relational dialectics. But if your motivation doesn't have the best interests of the other in mind, then you probably shouldn't expect that this is going to end well. Their change starts with you. You cannot bring someone into health and life and peace if you are not in a place of health and life and peace. You can only output what you have instilled. You can only produce from your garden what you've taken the time to cultivate. Wherever you go, there you are. And sometimes uh, this is called like a non-anxious presence, right? A presence with no agenda, no ulterior motives, and whose health and life and peace is not dependent on external circumstances. And it's a good thing to pursue that just in and of itself. But if changing another person is on the table... It's a requirement. The second step in this process, if we are to avoid the violent controlling tendency with, you know, its self-motivated sensibilities, the second step is restraint. And I hope you're catching a theme here. In seeing unhealth or injustice or wrong or failure or inadequacy or damage, you're going to want to attack it but that might not be effective. And you might be doing to them something that will just want to make them want to change you. You have to accept that change won't happen magically on your timetable or through your action. You know, it's a futile potion because change is hard and it happens slowly. No matter how much you have seen the light or have the right answer or know what is best, the other person will have to own this for themselves. Their change has to come through their own intrinsic motivation. And you can walk with them, but you can't force them. Wherever they need to go, it needs to be their decision and their action. You then are going to have to practice some restraint. Finally, once you've handled those two components, once you've done your internal work, you've you've analyzed your intentions, and you've practiced some restraint, Now we're ready for your involvement. 
And this third step I'm going to say as unscientifically and informally and esoterically as possible. Step number three, love them into their future. Yeah. How's that for academia? Or to put it another way, at every moment that you want to critique and impose yourself and show them just how wrong or bad or messed up they are, just do the exact opposite. Essentially, if you want to change someone else, start treating them as if they are everything you long for them to be already. Imagine that healthy relationship or organization or community. What does it look like? How does it work? And then interact with the other as if it is already true. Give the responsibility and opportunity to be as if they have already arrived. Because what this does is it creates an an affirmative lens through which they can now see themselves. And, And it also creates a lens that you start changing how you see them. Remember George Herbert Mead, right? Other people are a mirror by which we understand ourselves. So be that kind of mirror that allows them to see themselves differently than they may currently be. And and in, in line with those first two processes, you may also begin to resemble a much healthier presence that fosters a better relationship. Sometimes uh, this is referred to as self-signaling or precognition, but it is essentially creating an environment for their attitude to bring forth a new landscape of possibility. And it's not dictated then by the territory in which they currently reside. You are giving them a lens to see themselves through. That will assist in determining a new trajectory. You know, the other option is to continue to reflect where they are so that their primary conception of themselves, uh, that they're receiving from the social sphere, it's just the very thing that's causing the potential problems in the first place. We, we behave in a way toward them. We take that step because we've done the internal work where we can invite them into a different reality. Instead of just prescribing for them what to do, we invite them forward. We pull them forward with us as we pull ourselves forward. Now again, this requires you to have no stake in the game except for their health or the larger health of, of everything. And on one hand, this will cause you to, to use a potential positive approach for your own gains, right? This could very easily become a form of manipulation. And, and, and we'll get to that shortly. But congruently, you're going to find yourself frustrated again and again because this isn't going to happen now on your timetable. You have to rid yourself of the intention that is motivated by self-gain. And you have to restrain yourself from being the primary character in their movement. Then you'll be able to have the kind of presence that unobtrusively allows them to pull themselves into a different kind of future. I want to give you a couple pictures for how this works. And uh, outside of minor inferences, I have not really... uh, offered the one field that I actually have some extensive training in. This is partly uh, because it's a field with a variety of reputations, right? Depending on one's perspective, it also has a very limited validity amongst different demographics. 
So I want to bring in the field of theology, at least for a brief moment. And if you wish I did this more often, I can only offer another podcast that I am involved with. It's called The Bible Archives, and I reserve most of my theological depth for that show. But anyways, once we've prepped the grounds of our presence to actually make changing someone possible, how do we do it? The theological perspective I'm going to offer, one that in my opinion has been corrupted quite a bit, is the gift of communal interaction referred to as prophecy in the Christian and Jewish tradition. Now, once you're done gasping for air or rolling your eyes, give me an opportunity to explain myself, because as I said, I don't think the understanding of prophecy as you know purported in mainstream consciousness is, is actually a good perspective. And so if we're just to analyze uh, the use of prophecy in the Hebrew Bible or in the early Christian tradition, a helpful starting point would be to define it as the following. The building up of who you really are or who you are really intended to be. There is a confrontation of the present, but it is done, uh, done in a way to compel change toward a, a possible different future. So a present predicament with future consequences. This also means it has very little to do with telling the future or predicting the future. Now, for the curious, I'm taking this cue from, you know, the the general prophetic text in the Hebrew Bible and specifically from how uh, Paul in the epistle to the Corinthians articulates the concept. That's quite literally where I got that from. Um, But here's how I think this is connected to what we're talking about with changing other people. Because the outcome of prophecy, especially in those two frameworks I just mentioned, is always a tangible change that manifests in the transformation of the other through a transformation in the presence of the person offering the change. So, a couple examples. Your spouse forgets the schedule or or loses their keys all the time. Option one, chastise them. Option two, just deal with it. Option three, deal with it and begin to speak to them as a beloved, as someone who is caring and diligent and a remembering kind of person. Another example, your partner often speaks demeaningly to you. Okay, so option one, destroy them. Make them know who they're messing with. Option two, deal with it and worry about you and what you can control. Option three, create a climate and a standard of unconditional love. And not in a pretentious way like, well, you're an ass, but I love you even if you don't love me. No, in a way that names the goodness which is there even though it may be hidden in the moment. Let's do another one. Your child is a bit violent, often resorts to lashing out on others in anger. Option one, punish them angrily in the moment. You know, do the very thing you're trying to change. At the least, it'll it'll show them, uh, you know, how it doesn't work. Option two, A, do nothing except maybe apologize to the affected. Um, option to B, give them natural consequences for their actions. Hmm. Slight parenting curveball intended to incite a different episode one day. Option three, 
Remove them from doing damage, but speak to them in a way that names the expectation and value of being gentle and loving, that their violence is not their innate nature. One more just for fun. Let's say your organization needs to change their identity. Stuff just ain't working. Option one, threaten everyone. Option two, pick up the slack yourself and do it single-handedly. Option three, function a half step ahead by practicing and proclaiming the new identity. That's not quite happening yet, but you act as if it were the standard until it becomes normal. See, when you engage in, you know, a relationship or a situation in a way that assumes that they are already that which is the hope for change, you reflect their life to them in a way that allows for the person to see themselves differently. It adds a, a, a decision option to the person receiving your approach. It offers a new narrative, not of shame or failure, that's just going to incite a negative response. Instead, you're, you're offering a way for them to perceive themselves and to understand that in that moment, they can perceive themselves as, as simply wandering from who they are capable of being. You know, that's not who you are. It, it might have been written, but that ain't all there is to the story. That's just the lens you're deciding to use in those moments. You're exposing another trajectory of the story. And when it's done this way, both parties are involved and invested and inclined to the possibility. See, the critical, violent, controlling form of changing other people, it begins with who they are not. Which, honestly, it's there. There's some sort of failure. There's, there's some sort of wandering. Absolutely. The prophetic form of changing other people begins with who they are. It embraces the possibility of becoming which is also there just as much as the failure. See, we tend to just focus on what's absent, what's wrong. All those other pieces are still there too. We have to decide which ones we reflect. In the prophetic version, it honors the fullness then of their humanity. It acknowledges the wandering. It acknowledges what has happened, the predicament that needs confronted. It also acknowledges all of the possibility. It acknowledges, you could say, that we can still continue to become more and more human. You confront what is happening by naming how they've wandered, but then you reconstruct the narrative by showing them the better version that's already there too, even if it hasn't been chosen yet. And again, you do this in a cheesy way. I don't think it'll work. You know, it isn't this explicit like, hey, you know, I love you no matter what, and I believe you're good. I mean, that might work in the context of specific relationships, you know, who utilize that communication pattern, but generally, I don't know. In fact, often this isn't anything you say. You, you treat them as that person you believe to them to be. You show it, you know, by your nature. You set that standard. But even like maybe with kids, it is, hey, that's not how this family works. We are, you know, fill in the blank, whatever language you use. But here, to give a response, <laughs> this is going to go against everything I just said about the cheesiness. Honestly, the top of mind example of this for me, and this is just because my children happen to have watched Moana the other day, is when Moana sings to Teka, who is, hey, spoiler alert here, who is actually Tefiti. 
it's a great example of changing someone else through this concept of, of prophecy and mutual transformation. I know your name. They stole your heart, but this does not define you. This is not who you are. You know who you are. Again, don't replicate the exact style there, but the concept's on point. Artistically, of course, I mean, if you want to bust out in a theatric rendition of Moana, all means, go for it. Just please record it and send it to me. That'd be hilarious. But your role in this, now that you have properly alleviated yourself from the active role of being the primary beneficiary, and have rid yourself of an agenda leading to control, you are able to passively present in a way that reveals to them a discovery they can own for themselves. You're able to present a different future and a different trajectory. A non-anxious presence that invites a better future of transformation for both parties based on what's real in the human possibility. It's not this pressure. It's not this manipulation. It pulls us into the future by exemplifying that future in the present. You speak to, interact with, and relate to them divested of your own singular interest, which makes possible the act of trust. That This posture, it's possible because you are a voice that speaks to them, not for them. You are a bystander in their life to be trusted. And out of genuine love for them, change becomes at at least possible. But it's not based on being correct or using your power as a weapon. It all comes down to the relationship. Genuine care creates trust. Trust changes people, even yourself. Now, let me make a case for this outside of the theological realm. And I think that is a solid example, great way to inspire the concept. But let's go to psychology now. And then a quote, and then a couple disclaimers for what we ought to do with this. In educational psychology, there's a concept called the Pygmalion effect. It's based on several studies where different sets of students were treated differently, even though they all had the same test scores, right? And these were all just kind of, you know, your average students, same scores. One group was treated as if they were the top students. You know, that they were capable of getting high scores because they were inherently gifted and smart. The other group was given less attention and were presumed, you know, you're just average or below average students at best. What do you think happened? Students who were at the same level began scoring and performing in reflection of how they were treated. Each set of students lived into what they were told, that the picture painted of who they were, determined who they became. And, and this is not just utilized in education. I've, I've experimented with this approach in athletic coaching, organizational leadership, parenting. I actually think this works because this is, unfortunately, the only real way to change other people. People tend to function as self-fulfilling prophecies of what we believe about ourselves. And if a lot of that perception comes from the people around us, that is the only real tangible effect we can have on someone. Paint the picture that who they can become is in fact already in a potential state and it will shape how they see themselves and what they believe about themselves 
and the behavior will follow that narrative. And, and while you can't determine that they will accept the narrative, you can't control that, it is the only thing you can offer. Which brings me back to one of my favorite quotes by one of my favorite authors, Antoine de Saint-Zupéry. This is from The Little Prince. If you want to build a ship, don't drum up laborers to gather wood, divide the work, and give orders. If you want to build a ship, teach people to long for the immensity of the sea. Cast the vision. Affirm the possibility. Create a new, beautiful destination for what is possible, and there is nothing that will stop them from sailing those blue waters more than anyone could have imagined. All right, let's wrap this up. Just a couple thoughts that we need to uh, practically consider when it comes to changing other people. First, make sure you divest yourself of interest. Make sure you are not trying to control their behavior because the only person you can control is you. You have to take yourself out of the equation as much as humanly possible. And let it be said, you are not responsible for another's behavior. And the only person you can actually change is you. However, you can be responsible to other people. And this starts with you taking responsibility for yourself. Of you being a particular kind of person that is divested of any interest pertaining to what you will gain from their change. Whatever change you are hoping to ensue, it will begin by detaching yourself from dependency on that change happening. Worry about you. Be the character of your story, not theirs. Then you will be able to speak to impact, compel that person into their own story. But it begins by you placing yourself outside of it. right? And when we enter in and we just assume we are right and we've got this figured out, the whole process now is a mute point. If you haven't considered that you are the one needing to be changed too, I really do think we need more humility here. Like, you know that question at the beginning of the, the previous episode when we started this? There's a really good chance that the person who came to your mind was also thinking the same thing about you. Second point. Conditioning is manipulation, and manipulation is control. Classical conditioning is sort of, it, it's a way of tricking someone to take on new behaviors via rewards or punishments. Okay. Conditioning someone, that still implies then that you have a stake in the game of their life and you're an active player in conditioning who they will be. It also makes it more likely that any perceived change will be extrinsically motivated because they're just doing it for the reward or to avoid the punishment. And so sustained change and investment in the change is less likely over time. And so you have to be careful that you're not utilizing, you know, the, these, these techniques to still get your way, all right? You can be really nice and supportive and do the Pygmalion thing, but it's still all about you. And, and if you are not changing in the process, then this part obviously hasn't happened. And this could be a critique of the tiger story that we opened this whole conversation with. 
the tiger is coming close because it's getting food. And so is that intrinsically motivated or extrinsically? Is the person just conditioning the behavior? It's never going to work. But we have to be really careful that we're not, you know, doing this Moana thing just so that we can still trick them into what we want. Third, boundaries. If you are in a position where you need someone to change because you are being dehumanized, harmed, or imprisoned by their presence, please do not try to change them. Do not try to be the bigger person and Moana their future into reality. If your survival or or health is at risk, this is not the time for heroism. This is not the time to be the bigger person. And just like in conflict resolution, there, there are situations where before the conflict resolution can even happen, other junk needs dealt with first. They are not your responsibility. You don't have to save them, especially if you are the one who needs saved from a catastrophic outcome in your own well-being. All right? Fourth, boundaries part two. You can't change everyone. You can't speak prophecy to everyone. There are some relationships that you simply do not have the authority to be this catalyst. Like if we use the mirror concept from George Herbert Mead, some people that you want to change, that you want to speak a new future to, people you genuinely want to help, they don't consider you an influence. You don't have that kind of connection. That's okay. There's 8 billion people on the earth. You aren't going to have that kind of intimacy and authority with everyone. In short, stop thinking your social media posts are going to accomplish anything other than making you feel heroically right. Have some boundaries with how you approach who you can change as well. And then finally, in in, in context of trust and, and intimacy and interdependent connection, Doing this will cost you something. If, if you wait for them to change and you only critique them and condemn them and force your will upon them along the way, then nothing's probably going to happen at all. But if you do take the first step, if you do the hard work and treat them for what you know they can be, it just might create a fertile soil to give them space to begin learning and becoming into their new future but that's going to be a slow, patient process, you know, like a woman getting close enough to the tiger to pluck a whisker. And so you have to see that this costs you something because it is slow and difficult and potentially overbearing. This makes you have to stay in the process and the messiness that is our relationships. But this also costs you the most because this just may, in fact, begin with you. Beware that changing other people is not all it's cracked up to be. And beware that this is a journey which will implicate your life. Make sure you are okay with those things before you embark on the immense sea before you.